you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue our walk through uh, the book of Romans, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2. We're going to go through 1 through 6, and we're going to pick up next week, starting again at verse 6, and then moving through, I have no idea how far we'll move through, Um, but it will be further. The first two, and that's all you're getting, folks, that is as far as I commit, all right? Um... Romans 1 and 2 just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. If you're a visitor here, you will not be encouraged this morning, all right? No. I hope that you are. But I want you to follow me into what the Holy Spirit is leading us in. And that is, in the first couple chapters, the total depravity of our hearts. How we are undone. We're hopeless. We have nothing. We're naked. And it's going to get darker and darker and darker. And, then, and that's going to be on purpose. So that when we get to the end, that darkness will help illuminate and highlight the only hope that we have, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. How many here feel encouraged already? Just like, wow. Oh, that's such a, such a TED talk on encouragement. <laughs> Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. And you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Such things are all those sins we read at the end of chapter 1. But do you suppose this, O man, depending on your version, O foolish person, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, yet you do the same yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly? Do you cast aside? Do you minimize the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, knowing that the kindness of God is to lead you to repent? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, in revelation and revelation, For the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6. Who will render God will. Each individual person. According to his every single individual deed. Let's ask for God's blessing. And for his Holy Spirit to help us. To teach and understand this. Gracious Father we come before you. And we ask one thing. We ask for Christ. We ask that through His Holy Spirit You would reveal how sinful we are. How sinful I am. And in that utter darkness, Lord, Your cross becomes so precious. Father, we teach... 
We treat your gospel with such flippancy, such carelessness, because we don't understand. Our ears don't hear and our eyes don't see. Father, show us today. I confess my sins in front of these people. I am not worthy to teach your word. All I have is Christ. And so, Father, bless your word. May the meaning of this text be our message. And I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. You guys ready to follow me into the dark, dark abyss? Say amen. Amen. Okay, some of you are like, what? No. (laughs) I'm better than that. I'm better than him. And I'm certainly better than her. Who could do such a thing as that? And my personal favorite, I know I'm not perfect, but. Buckle up, folks, when you hear those words, I know I'm not perfect because you're about to get a double-barrel shotgun of judgment from someone who thinks that they're pretty close to being perfect. All of these things point to the heart of our next text. Paul has just finished a list of 22-ish, depending on how you count them, sins found in Romans 26, or 1, 26 through 32, starting with sexual immorality all the way down to haters of God and disobeying their parents. He points to this list. For the most part, while all of these things are true of of all people in the church in Rome, whether they be Jewish or Gentile, the primary uh, speaking here is about the Gentile culture in the church of Rome during this time. Paul was kind of focusing in on the Gentiles who were very familiar with these kinds of things. The Jewish portion of the church, who have just recently arrived from being banished from Claudius, well, they grew up with the scriptures. I mean, you're going to start to see yourself here a little bit. I'm going to start to see myself. They grew up with the scriptures. They grew up going to synagogue and to church, if you will. They did not participate, at least openly, in many of these sins that we see here. In short, here it is. They didn't see themselves in this list. They didn't see themselves in it. If anything, they may have seen themselves as superior to those other people. Now, how many here are thankful that the church no longer struggles with a spirit of superiority within the church? Amen? Where we just all go around and say, how can I show grace? Pride would have filled the lungs of the Jewish members of the church as they said to themselves, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that. I'm better than this list here. Paul's going to pivot on his heel and he's going to drive right at the church attending moralist in the community. And I want to make this clear. While Paul is speaking to the church in Rome, and he's speaking to us right now, he is speaking to the moralist in the church who has yet to fully come to salvation in Jesus Christ. 
We are, this person is surrounded by Judeo-Christian values and morals. They, and with that culture and with those morals, they wrongfully conclude because of how they were raised and what they associated with, they wrongfully conclude that this proves or shows salvation. In many ways, this, this group of people are the first cultural Christians that we see within the Word of God. They are a moral church attending, goody two shoe, unsaved church member. This clearly is seen in five evidences in this passage. Paul says to such a person who practices, he says, the same sin will suffer the same judgment, will resist the same kindness of God, will store up the same wrath in God, and will be judged by the same standard as the unbelievers in chapter 1. So what we have here is Paul saying, you may look shiny, you may look moral, You may look different from them, but you have the same root. Paul could have addressed this very well to the city of Grand Rapids. The word therefore, there's our text, ties everything that is about to be said back to what he just spoke about in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. We studied that last time we were together, and I encourage you to listen to that online in order to catch up. We're not going to spend time on that. Paul is talking about God's wrath to those who reject him and embrace sin. Now, there's very public ways of doing that. We see that in Romans chapter 1, whether it be through sexual sin or, or how we treat people and hating God and inventing ways to be evil and all of that stuff. There's very overt, outward ways of doing that. And there's very shiny, moral, good-looking ways to do that. Paul's talking about those who reject God and embrace sin. Paul is saying to the church attending moralist, your outward clean life is no match for the eyes of God. You cannot fool him. And from here, he's going to unpack his perfect judgment, his perfect vision, his perfect understanding. Self-righteousness is by far the hardest sin for people to see in themselves. Self-righteousness is by far the hardest sin to see in ourselves. Now, Paul is about to become very pointed here. Rather than using inclusive pronouns, and I'm really excited about pronouns in this day and age, but, but rather than using inclusive, inclusive pronouns like we, us, our, they, them, he just abandons them all and he points his finger with the, with the, with the, with the pronoun you. You do this, church. You do this, moralist. In three verses, he says it nine times. And in the five verses or six verses we are going to look at it, he does it at least 12 to 13 times. My friend, self-righteous moralism is an evasive predator that lives in the hearts of, I want to say many of us, like I put up there, but frankly, in all of us. So in humility, I want you to know I'm going to adopt Paul's language here. Because it is such a slippery sin to pin down, I'm going to adopt Paul's language here in order to pin it down in you and in me. So I'm going to use the same language of Paul. I'm going to use from here on out the words you. And please know that when I say the word you, whatever I say bounces off you and what? 
Yeah, because we're mature in Christ, right? So I want you to know I include myself in that you. So I'm going to talk to you. I'm not talking to your wife. I'm not talking to your husband. I'm not talking to the person next to you. You. Your self-righteous moralism that justifies your anger and minimizes your own sin is just as damning in the sight of God as homosexuality, murder, hate, and callousness. In fact, we saw it in the previous slide. The same sin, the same judgment, the same rejection. Self-righteousness and a cavalier spirit to the gospel is a clear indication of being culturally Christian. Let me say that again because I want you to apply it to you. Self-righteousness and a cavalier spirit towards the gospel of Jesus Christ where if I have time, if the weather isn't too good or isn't too bad, if I have access resources, if how I use my time, if we are just flippant with that... It is a clear indication of cultural Christianity. In fact, it says this. Every one of you who passes judgment. Everyone who passes judgment. Let me unpack this a minute. Many within the Jewish community thought that they were immune to God's wrath because they were very, very culturally Christian. Very religious. Very moral. They were highly moral. Followed, they followed biblical principles Sure, they weren't perfect, but certainly they weren't as bad as Romans chapter 1. This, by the way, is one of the most poorly and selfishly interpreted verses in all of Scripture. So I want you to hear this. Contrary contrary to Christian radio DJ theology. Did you catch that? Contrary to Christian radio DJ theology, Paul and the Holy Spirit is not condemning the act of passing judgment on sin. Let me say that again. They are, Paul and the Holy Spirit are not condemning the judgment of sin. Paul is condemning a self-righteous judgment. In fact, we see that in the words twice here where he says, practice the same things of them, and just to make sure, he writes it again, and you do them the same as well. Those who use this verse to say making judgment on people's sin is wrong must then completely erase all of chapter uh, uh, Roman 1, must completely erase, erase Paul's teaching in Romans 1, has to completely erase the teachings of Jesus Christ, and really just set the word of God on fire. Okay? Because that, in, even in Romans chapter 1, Paul judges many, many sins that people are doing. Paul is not instructing the church to turn a blind eye to sin. He is condemning turning a blind eye to your own sin. You see the difference. We're not to turn a blind eye to our own sin, or, uh, sin but, but not turn a blind to our own sin. Paul is not condemning judgment. He is condemning self-righteous judgment. And here is why. Self-righteous, moralistic people make two great errors in our lives. We underestimate God's holiness. We underestimate God's holiness. How many times have you told yourself it's not that big a deal? Everyone does it. You're right. Everyone does do it. But it is a very big deal to God. It was big enough for him to send his only son to die on our behalf. We minimize the holiness of God, and we, we, we also minimize the seriousness of our own sin. Now the question rises, how do I do the same things as Romans chapter 1? 
Paul is speaking to those who abstain from the act, but engage them in their heart. Paul is dressing the heart of man here. My sin is less, says the moralist, the cultural Christian. My sin is less, for it has not made it to my hands. It has not made it to my hands. Paul says God's judgment is so perfect. His judgment is so perfect that he sees the heart as clearly as he sees the act. He sees the heart as clearly as he sees the act. Now, as we look at this here, to be clear, and I love this statement, to be clear, temptation is not a sin. How many are thankful for that? Temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without what? All right. I I love how Charles Spurgeon uh, uh, said this about temptation. He said this, I am not responsible for the bird that flies over my head, but I am responsible to make sure that bird does not make a nest in my hair. That's what we're looking at here. Paul is speaking to the man who publicly declares, I have never struggled with pornography, yet stares holes through his wife's friends. A person who simply renames their sin, allow me to rename some of last week's sins that we do in our hearts. That person hurt my friend. That makes my malice and my contempt and my unforgiveness justified. I don't lie, or I'm sorry, we don't lie, we stretch the truth. They are arrogant, I am principled. They steal, I borrow. They are prejudiced, I have convictions. They are unmerciful, I am loyal. They sin, I make mistake. They hold grudges, I stand for truth. Their failure is morally wrong, my failure is justified. Paul has a word for you. He says it over and over and over again. Foolish person. Foolish person. Some of your translations might say, oh, mere insignificant, ignorant, clay of flesh. Could you be so foolish, oh man? You think for a moment you're better. You think you're going to escape the wrath of God because your sin has not sunk to some moral extreme? Oh, hear this. Hell will be full of judgmental church-attending goody-goody-two-shoes. People who use their shiny life as a means to gain a following where, where appearance is more important than health. My friends, this kind of heart is killing the gospel message in the church just like it was in Rome then. Nothing is more destructive to the spread of the gospel than self-righteousness. Kent Hughes said it well when he said this, if you want to know if you have the elusive sin of self-righteousness in you and not even know it, he says this, If you have a critical self-righteous spirit, others will sense it and they will minimize their interaction with you. You, your family, your friend group will become increasingly detached from others. People will only stay in the shallow end of conversations with you. My friends, self-righteousness hinders the work of the church far more than a murderer ever could. 
And what comes next ought to absolutely terrify you in your seat as you wrap new names on your sin to look shiny. Paul says you will not escape the judgment of God. This here refers to the great white throne judgment of God. And it is written to those who were born and raised in the church. It is written to the nicest, most moral person who has, who has never truly repented. I mean, here's why. Because they see no need. They've just always known moral Judeo-Christianity. They, say, they see no need. They do not see themselves in chapter 1. The church attending moralist often makes a big mistake. They think that their lack of trouble in life is a sign that they are right with God. They think that their lack of troubles means that they are right with God. In fact, Paul says to such a person, when you do that, you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his restraint and his patience. Now this word lightly here literally means you take it for granted. You take it lightly. Does Grand Rapids... Do you, do I, do you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it costs an infinite holy God to become sin like it's a paper plate we use when we want to eat? To take it lightly, to take it for granted, to dismiss it, to disregard it. The word kindness here is talking about the common grace of God. That's what Paul is talking about. The common grace of God, if I I could put it into a picture, think of a a rainstorm, if you will. If you have an ungodly, unsaved farmer over in this piece of land over here, and you have a repentant, godly farmer on, on this piece of land over here, and God sends the thunderclouds, and the rains fall, and he sends the rain, which farm receives the blessing? Talk to me, church. Both. That's the common grace of God. The common grace of God. Paul says to the moralist, the ungodly lost farmer in the field of the church, if you will. You think you're good marriage? You think you're good home? You think your healthy kids and your gainful employment is evidence of God's approval? And Paul just goes, false! These good things, the American dream that we're all elevating over the cross of Jesus Christ, this American dream we have is nothing more than the restraint of God. It is nothing more than his patience with us. Moralist, God would have been justified to strike you dead forever at your first initial sin. Genesis makes this clear. It says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it that day, you will surely die. All of us are under the judgment of death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. The fact that God didn't strike Adam and Eve dead on the spot was, here it is, it was his mercy. It was his mercy that drove them out of the garden and protected the tree of life. John MacArthur says this, the fact that only 35 things in the Old Testament were punishable by death. Now, we look at that and go, hokey, 
pokey, do we not? 35, do you want to know what a capital punishment in the Old Testament was? Well, there is no indications that was ever actually practiced. One of them in the Old Testament is that if you didn't respect and obey your parents, you could receive capital punishment. I'm just joking. For all of us. Now grab this because John, John and I were pretty tight. We were talking this week, all right? He was doing most of the talking. I was doing all the listening. But still, it was a great conversation we had over there in Sun Valley, California. Here it is. The fact that only 35 things in the Old Testament were punishable by death is mercy. It's mercy. The fact that you and I breathe right now is mercy. Paul says anything that is good right now is God restraining postponing, being patient. The fact that any of us breathe, it is, it is not as approval. Don't disregard it. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. Allow me to address a faulty reasoning within our pop psychology of today. It's often asked, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? My friends, that reveals an utterly poor and bankrupt view of sound doctrine within the Word of God. Why does God allow good things to ha- or bad things to happen to good people? Here it is. There are no good people. There is, finish this, this verse, we're going to see it in Romans. There are none what? Righteous. None. All fall short of the glory of God. There is none that is good. No, not a single one. The question that we should ask in absolute utter wonder is, is, is why does God allow any good at all? Mercy. Don't take it lightly. This paradigm shift in our perspective ought to cause our hearts to melt towards God, to melt towards God, to not take it lightly and see it as his patience and not take it for granted. Here's a question, and feel free to answer it if you've ever seen it. Have you ever had a hard, or ever seen or had your hard heart melt towards a person because of how they treated you? Have you ever seen a beautiful woman married to an ugly man? No, Brett, never, not at all, no. That has never been seen here at Trinity. You know what? Shame on you. Although I did marry up. And by up, I mean like stratospheres, like, like satellites haven't gotten there yet, all right? This is false humility here, all right? So just hold your amens. That's where that beautiful woman is married to, this is not in my notes, but one thing I've, oh, <laughs> so I'm about to create a new doctrine here. Maybe I could preach it on Christian radio, DJ. Now, my whole life, I'm like, oh, you, and you guys have heard this, oh, this is my wife, Amy, and people are like, oh, can, is she like, hard her sight bad, or, my friends would tell me that. I'm like, oh, this is my wife, Amy, or my girlfriend, or my fiance, no offense, <laughs> When someone says, no offense, or I'm not perfect, whatever they say they're not, 
I'm not saying we would leave the church over this. I'm like, well, let me get your bags. All right, let me go over here and grab your bags. (laughs) A beautiful woman, Mary, an ugly man. By the way, many of you come to my mind. (laughs) And you ask that woman, and I'm just going to pick a a woman's name here, Mercedes. How is it that you ever ended up marrying Elmer? I typed in to Google, but not AI because I'm scared to death of that. (laughs) Ugliest male name ever. I just, that's what I typed in. Elmer, number one. (laughs) Very interesting websites, by the way. No, let's move forward. Mercedes was, when you saw Elmer, was it love at first sight? What's the answer, ladies? No. I was dismissive. I was distant. I, was, I took him lightly. I took him for granted. I was uninterested. But over time, I just saw he was so kind. He was so gracious. He was so patient. He was so loving. He was so considerate until I found my, myself asking this, why would I not want this good person? That on a much larger scale is what's going on here with Paul. Paul says God's kindness and his patience should melt your heart in such a way that you turn around and you move towards that which you once hated. In fact, he comes right out and says it. Such an act of God is meant to, here it is, lead us to repentance. And repentance literally means to turn away from immorality in the heart and turn towards God in his righteousness. It is here where Paul is talking about true faith for the first time. This is true faith. And notice it includes repentance, not sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not saying one can't be in the other. I'm just saying one is insufficient without the other. Repentance. Paul's talking about true faith, not moralism, not cultural Christianity. True faith and repentance causes the moralist in the church to see their own sin and turn away from their self-righteousness. My friend, true faith and repentance, here it is. Remember this from previous studies in the book of Acts, changes Everything, it changes your mind, it changes your emotions, it changes your actions. All three must be seen in genuine repentance. If not all three change, then that is false repentance. I want you to hear this clearly. There is a faith that does not save. We ought to, we have erased this from the word of God. James 2, faith without works is, is what church? True faith produces transformation. It is, John says, if you say that, that you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Luke 3 says you ought to produce works in accordance to repentance. If you confess a faith that produces no spiritual fruit of repentance, that faith is a lie. And that's who Paul's talking about. I'm going to speak boldly here to you, to those of you who are at home, to those of you who are in the pew, and to those of us who stand behind pulpits. If you are habitually forsaking church, not desiring Christ past lip service, 
If his word is not the water of your soul, if you go days without even having him on your lips, if the things of Christ are not precious to you, if you are not increasingly conforming into the image of God and away from the pattern of the world, you are as a self-deceived, unrepentant moralist in need of salvation. And the American dream that you think is God's blessing is but his patience calling you to repentance. Run right now! Paul is speaking to a religious moral person who purposely engages in the same sin secretly, thinking they are different than the damned. Is that you? Is it me? And then Paul says something that is often never seen, that is often never learned, that is often never heard within the church. Because the modern church today has abandoned the whole counsel of God. We have discarded the word of God for pep talks designed to fill chairs and grow campuses and gain market share rather than redemption and repentance. Paul teaches that a moralist that does not repent, no matter how shiny they look, no matter shiny their life looks, here it is, is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul is speaking about the great white throne judgment again. Revelation chapter 20, 10 through 15. This is where people are sentenced to hell. Parenthetical note, this is not the judgment seat of Christ where those who have truly repented will be rewarded for what they did for Christ. This here is where unrepentant sinners will stand before a holy and righteous God, before their sin will be judged forever. And who will be there? The moralist. We tend to think that when it comes to hell, you're either in or you're either out. For most of us, that's why we even said the sinner's prayer, to escape hell. Not to love Jesus, but to avoid punishment. That's not faith. We tend to think that when it comes to hell, you're either in or out, innocent or guilty. Hell is hell and heaven is heaven. It's not true. This is not the teaching of the Bible at all. Again, let us remember that Paul is speaking to a highly moral person in the church who is not truly repentant, evidence in that they can take or leave Jesus Christ based on the weather and think that their small sins are not as bad as the big sins. God tells us that every sin that we commit, every thought, every word, every deed, everything not done, will one day be exposed one by one on judgment day. Every thought, every omission, every hate, every desire, every prayer, every pride, will be brought up on that day and judged individually in front of you. And he will unpack the sin 
and that sin. And the pile will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you will be without excuse. My friend, every time you sin, you add more wrath to your eternal judgment. R.C. Sproul summarized it like this. A murderer who kills ten people will not feel the wrath of God for being a murderer. He will feel the wrath of God ten times greater for each time he murdered. The same is true for malice. The same is true for unforgiveness. The same is true for hate. The same is true for bitterness. Note this. There are various degrees of punishment in hell because it is where God's perfect justice is manifested perfectly on every sin. And this is not some obscure seminarian doctorate dissertation where academics speculate on inferred truth of the Bible. This is from the lips of Christ. One theologian wrote this. A sinner in hell would give everything he owned and do anything he could to make one less the number of his sins during his lifetime because he will be judged according to his deeds. Storing up wrath. Let me just make some declarative statements here. No single sin will go unpunished. No thought, no hate, no pride, no act, no haughty spirit. Hence the words, storing up wrath and repay each person individually according to his individual deeds. We will not be judged by the summary of our lives. They're not going to throw the, the good deeds on this side of the scale and throw the, 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 the sin on this side of the scale and just kind of see where it balances out. Every single one of them. We will be judged by every second of every deed, of every thought, of every passive moment. My friends, God's mercy is now. His patience is now. His kindness is now. There will not be a drop of mercy There will not be a drop of grace on the day of his wrath. Spurgeon said this, that the day of God's wrath, it is a land where repentance is impossible and useless if it were. Nor will God be calm or stoic. He will not be like the oil paintings where he's on the throne calm and collected. The word wrath here in the Greek is where we get the English word orgy. It is an act that is an uncontrolled, bridled, settled passion. A rage of passion. There are other words for wrath. Paul and the Holy Spirit could have dropped on us here, but he went with orgy. God will be pouring out his wrath in utter holy passion. 
He will be breathing out vengeance on every and each sin before him. Much like Jesus who turned the tables over in the temple and made a whip and drove people out of the temple because they were defiling his father's house. In that orgy, in that wrath, so will the day of God's wrath. In absolute fury of rage, God will roar in absolute crushing wrath. His hatred towards every single sin ever acted on, entertained, or thought will be poured out on the person who did them. God will not separate the sin from the sinner. He will fuse them eternally together. So powerful and so passionate and so filled with rage that even the heavens and the earth will violently be terminated for even having the effects of sin. I mean, there will not be a single vapor of mercy on the day of wrath and there the moralist will stand undone naked as the murderer behind him and the rapist before him unable to utter a sound for there is no defense before a holy and sinless God fear him seek him While he is kind, while he is patient, while he is merciful, for there is no hope, no secret, nothing hidden. How dark is the total depravity of man? How comprehensive is our falling short of the glory of God? People, we will be undone. Our total depravity before God is unfathomable. And we should shudder. For on that day, we will be sinners in the hands of a rageful God. So why do I paint such a dark, black picture of our moral standing before God because it is here in this void darkness. It is here in this terrifying, hopeless, inescapable, unavoidable moment that it is here that that salvation becomes priceless. Look at it. Do you not want to run to it? Do you not want to embrace it? Do you not want to treasure it? Would you want to abandon everything to be with him? Do you not want to carry that cross, proclaim that cross, love that cross with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind? Oh, church, how shall we neglect Such an unbelievable salvation. The difference between the unsaved moralist in the church and a sinner saved by grace is very clear. The repentant saved value Christ more than their life. And they have a growing hatred to their own sin and apathy. Because that cross is so precious.
the reason so many in the church treat the gospel with such careless flippancy is because we have no idea the gravity of our sin before wrathful God. Oh, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood. This is all my righteousness. Run to him while he may be found. Friend, are you a moralist that judges others' sin while renaming your own? Repent. The church should be a place that is flooded with grace, flooded with forgiveness, flooded with mercy, for our lives have been flooded by His. And this should call the moralist to repent and confess Christ. And it should cause the Christian in the church to joyfully joyfully pursue the one living God. In a moment I'm going to pray and we're going to sing nothing but the blood. Christian, if you need to repent of something, do it. Do it where you're at. Do it up here. I always grew up, this was kind of a special place. Now it's apparently unneeded. Cultural Christian moralist who can barely give a rip about Christ but yet claim his salvation. Repent. Come up during this song. I would love to lead you to Christ. And while doing so, remember, God, I'm a sinner. Those of you who do neither, but realize just how precious the cross is, sing at the top of your lungs. Stephanie's going to come up for in a moment and she's going to sing that first verse. Just listen. Just don't listen. Suck up those words. And then she's going to invite you to join in. Gracious Father, we are undone without your righteousness. Father, these are dark chapters and I can't wait to get to chapter 3. That in the darkest of dark, your gospel will be presented. 
Work in our lives right now. Work in mine. Tired of being. We love you. Amen.
Church, I love you. My hope is that you love him. But let us remember only because he loved us first. I love you guys. You're dismissed.